0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, welcome to the first installment of the Spring 2016 UC Santa Barbara Distinguished Lecture Series. I have a really fun speaker um, for you guys tonight, Talo Stansbury. So a lot of times we try to bring in the spectrum here, right? We bring in people that have started nonprofits. We bring in people that start um, small companies that grow into big companies. Sometimes we bring in people that start small companies that never grow into big companies. Um, but we don't always have a perspective of someone who's worked at some, of t- of some tech giants, some of the biggest companies in Silicon Valley. And we're, we have that experience tonight with Taylor. He's recognized as an industry expert. He has over 30 years um, as an executive in the tech sector, including 15 years as a senior executive with public software companies. So as his career has progressed, like most people, it's become a little bit more and more specialized. He is currently the CTO at Intuit, a public company. I think everyone here knows Intuit and TurboTax and all of their great products. A wonderful company that's doing a lot of really interesting things in the area of data, and we're going to touch upon that um, during our talk. Before that, he was with VMware, which is another stalwart in the Silicon Valley, another very, very successful company. Um, before that, he was um, executive vice president at Ariba, another software company where he ran product management, engineering, hosting, and customer support. He was the president there at Ariba. Before that, he was with Calico Commerce and Xerox, and there he had general management and executive engineering roles. Before that, um, early in his career, he was with Borland International and Sun Microsystems, Um, And he also did research in computational linguistics at Xerox's Research Center. So back in the early 80s, and we'll talk a little bit about that, back in the early 80s, 80s, he got to see sort of the whole PC revolution um, at the ground floor. Now, in addition to all of this great professional work, uh, Taylor is also giving back. So he's on the board of some smaller companies, including Coupa Software. Um, And he's also on on the board of several nonprofits, including um, chairing up the Advancement Committee for Harvey Mudd College. Giving back is a huge um, thing that you guys, you can do now a little bit with your time, but later in life, when you have a little bit more success under your belt, all of you guys are going to give back. And we do try to bring in speakers here that are well-rounded in all aspects of their lives. So they are, obviously they're successful professionally, they're successful in the sense that they're giving back to the community. Um, And in addition, they're successful in their personal life. Taylo is no exception there. He has four wonderful children, um, two of which, I feel bad for the other two, two of which are fortunate enough to attend a little-known school with a beach called UC Santa Barbara. We're all very proud of that. Taylor received his uh, BA degree in applied mathematics at Harvard, graduated with honors. I don't know what I'm in for here. Guys, um, obviously a lot smarter than I am. He's also completed graduate coursework at Stanford University in computer science, linguistics, and mathematics. Please join me in welcoming Taylor to UCSC. <laughs> Thank you. Good to see you. That might be the record for the longest introduction I've ever given. So awesome. I apologize for that. did you, you get <laughs> dinner and probably got a drink or two? In there. I'm like, when is this guy ever gonna stop? Um, so I want to start out with talking about your your children. Um, not the two that didn't go here. Are, are they gonna come? Are they young enough that they might come? One might. Okay, so we'll get three out of four. It's not bad. But as a parent of a, of, a UC, of two UC students, potentially three students, I'm curious about our reputation in Silicon Valley. What, you know, We used to be at the beach with a school a long time ago. That's changed. But what is our reputation now when you're just talking to friends and you tell them, oh, yeah, I've got a, two of my children are at UC Santa Barbara? What's the general reaction?
1: Good. I think that uh, the chancellor has done a lot of work to build this into a strong university, a science university, and uh, I think the reputation is good.
0: So, what are we known for? Like when, what, do people come back to you with specific remarks about, oh, I heard they have a good fill in the break
1: program? Or- science in particular. Yeah. Yeah. So, UCSB has amassed so many you know, papers and uh, Nobel laureates in the sciences. I think it's, it's really awesome.
0: What about computer science? Uh, known for that, but too small. Too small. The department's too small. Needs it's, to get bigger. I'm getting that on all the cameras. Uh, it's way too small. Um, but other than that, it's a great program. Yes, just need to crank it out is a great program. Ten times as many students.
1: Our Santa Barbara grads that we have working it into it are awesome.
0: That's great. So, about do you know approximately about how many you pick <clears throat> up a year? I don't offhand. Yeah. Okay. Well, we might have a few in this audience here, and I generally charge 150 bucks a head, recruiting fee. That's so. cheap. Yeah, it is cheap. Very cheap. <laughs> no, there's a number of students here that I'm sure would be quite interested in chatting with you um, when we're done. So. You have four children. Um, you have a successful um, personal life, an extremely successful professional life. How did you come up with any coping mechanisms, or, or is, is there anything you can share with the folks here as well as the folks watching that just helped you balance all of that over your over your career and continue to balance?
1: Balance, not perfectly, I would say. Um, so a quip I read a long time ago was, "If you want to be successful, then work half days all your life. Ah. It doesn't matter if it's the first 12 hours or the second 12 hours. <laughs> yes. But work half days all your life." I like that and uh if you I don't was, come in
0: if you don't come in saturday you don't come in sunday that kind of thing got it yeah so um in fact
1: i do roughly do that um monday through friday but then weekends i, I work very little
0: right so, so weekends
1: are more family time and recovery time
0: has your travel uh, kind of slowed down as you progress in your career or has it actually increased
1: i would say that when i worked for enterprise companies there was a lot more travel right. because there's a lot more visiting customers that you've got to do and Customers at, um, of enterprise companies really like to talk to the guy who's running engineering and product right, right. Um, so that they can complain about all the stuff that's wrong and yep.
0: get it fixed. Influence the roadmap. And, exactly. Yeah, they want input, so I'm, I'm yeah. sure you're in demand. Did you end up, I'm sure you use things like GoToMeeting, one of the companies I was involved with, where we got people off of airplanes by being able to have some meetings and now with video and... We've Are you had, finding that that's becoming more the norm? Or, totally. Uh, I think it's good
1: to meet people face-to-face the first time. Sure. There's something magical about that. Yeah. But then after you've established that relationship, then going to video for subsequent meetings is, I think, an absolute necessity you just couldn't keep track of everything. Right. So um, we use video between all of our sites. Most of my meetings include people at remote remote sites. You just can't oh, okay. do it otherwise. Oh, okay, even internally. Oh, yeah. I would say out of an average of 10 hours of meetings in a day... N- Probably eight of them are include somebody who's on video.
0: Are you really doing 10 hours of meetings a oh, day? Yeah. Wow. Let's give this guy another hand, Jesus. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good thing. <laughs> so I'm going to go to the first student's question in a minute, but um, I've got one more that I'm just um, curious about the early 1980s Xerox. Oh, yeah. So these guys, these children weren't even born, I should say, <laughs> most of them. So in the early 1980s, um, and, you know, Xerox came up with... A lot of things we take for granted. A lot of things Steve Jobs stole for the Macintosh, right? So the mouse, um, window, these iconic, the icons for a window, the trash can for dumping things away. All of those things that we take for granted were basically created at Xerox. So you were there at that time. What was what was that period like?
1: It was just an amazing creative period. There are so many brilliant people there who are inventing, you know, what is the present of, of computer science and everybody's uh, experience with computers. And... Uh, Uh, There was one really key invention of that that lab that the parent company deeply understood, and that was the laser printer Uh because it looked so much like a copier that they could understand it. Um, But it was also a period where, and this is an interesting general point about transmission between innovation and customer um, through a company, and does the company actually grok and have the wherewithal to bring that all the way to market? Mm -hmm. And and I would say that for many of the inventions at, at Xerox, they escaped through people leaving. Right and forming their own companies like Adobe and 3Com uh, or through people visiting like Steve Jobs who then incorporated right. into the at least <laughs> the Mac. It.
0: Yes. Well, so many of you are interested in, in reading about Xerox or just understanding that, that um, um, situation better. Read The Innovator's Dilemma. It's been around since the late 80s. Great book. But they are they're like the prototypical example of that. Um, and what it means essentially is whatever got you there, it makes it hard for you to do something else and morph into the next uh, phase. Google and other companies are really fighting that now. Um, but it's very hard because, you, you know, they're a copier company. Why would they be interested in a little computer with a mouse or whatever? It just didn't seem like it would be interesting to them. I'm going to be talking to Paul Orfala next week. And Paul um, started Kinko's. And Xerox supplied him with his machines. And it just seems crazy that at some point when, when, the, when the model became so obvious that they didn't come out with some sort of a, at least partnered with somebody or did something in that space – Because it just was clear that that retail version of a copier shop shop made sense, but they never did it. So at least as far as I know, they didn't. I'll ask Paul to make sure that that's true. So we'll take the first student question. Hi there. My question is in the ever-changing industry of technology, uh, what do you think is the next step for Intuit? Um, Are you going to expand on your credible um, services right now like QuickBooks and TurboTax, or are you going to search for new ideas, much like what Microsoft's doing, because they might rely too heavily on Microsoft Office?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think the thing we're really busy with now is reinforcing the technology, going after solving customer gaps with the existing software that we have, so TurboTax, QuickBooks, Payroll Payments, Mint, and most of all, Uh, making sure that those products really work as an ecosystem to serve customers to simplify their financial lives. And so we've actually shed a few companies that we'd acquired or built uh, within the last year so that we could focus in on the areas that really work together um, and that had synergies with each other to solve customer problems. Thanks.
0: So you went from Xerox to a much smaller company, became a big company, um, Sun Microsystems. So what? Uh, curious to know, like, what was the stage of that company at the time? How you know? How were the the contrast between the two? I'm sure were extreme. And I want to ask you if you knew somebody that was there at the time. But first, I want to hear <laughs> play the name game on live live TV. Oh gosh, um,
1: so it was uh, fairly small then, um, established but small, and uh, uh, and growing very very fast. Um, with, based on beautiful engineering of these these new workstations that yeah. were at a lower price, better performance than than the competition. And while I was there, we blew past a company called Apollo. I remember him. Um, we blew past HP. Yep. HP bought Apollo, and then we blew past the combination. So that was fun.
0: Yep, McNeely was McNeely was quite a guy. So did you ever run into Russ Bick? Is that no. name ring a bell? Okay, so he was, um, I guess, the first employee after Binod and, and Scott started the company. Um, so you started managing people at Sun. I'm sure you managed a handful of people before that, but that was, at least from my rendering of your background, that was the first top opportunity you were really a manager. Um, and I have no doubt that you managed a lot of young people at that time. You were relatively young. Since then, you've managed thousands of people. Do you have any thoughts, are there any patterns that you see with folks like this that are you know, 21, 22, when they first come out of college into that first technical job, that kind of common mistakes are making over and over? And if so, what are things they can do now to not make those mistakes when they hit the workforce?
1: Yeah, so maybe if I could tell first the story of how I started to make the transition sure. to the dark side. <laughs> so um, I had always viewed myself as technical from a very young age. I wanted to make things. I yeah. wanted to design things. I wanted to invent things. Um, and it took me a while sort of getting through college. I started in biology with a um, concentration in immunology and immunochemistry, and halfway through I took a computer science class as a gut um, Mm. uh, because my mom had taught me when I was very young uh, how to program and fell back in love with it and realized, oh gosh, I really should be doing this. I'm going to run that
0: tape back. Your mom taught you. My mom taught me. That's awesome. What was her background?
1: She um, actually, well, she went to foreign service school at Georgetown in the 50s, couldn't get a posting.
0: Ah, okay.
1: Different era. And, uh, and in the
0: 50s, so I've done a, I teach a history of entrepreneurship class, in the 50s and 40s too, women did a lot of coding and a lot of software correct. because it was typist. It was like, oh, use the machine like a keyboard. That's women's work. But as we know, writing software is like, that's the most important part of the whole thing. And then when the prestige of writing software reached an appropriate level, it was taken away from the women. It was like, yeah, 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 yeah. we'll do that now. Did I get that right? You anyway, got exactly she right. was one of the women. So she got hired as a
1: programmer by the Federal Reserve, <laughs> yep. and she worked uh, programming in machine language, not assembly, not higher level languages, wow. but machine okay. on IBM 1410s and then later on 360s. And um, when I was eight, she taught me to program in BASIC <laughs> as an experiment to see it would work. And then uh, at that time she'd switched to teaching, and since it worked, then she started teaching fourth graders uh, oh, how to program. You're
0: kidding? Yeah. Wow! So. GT fourth graders to program in basic, in what era was that? What year was that? Oh gosh. 80s? Um, somewhere in the Pleistocene,
1: no, in the 70s, early 70s. Wow, some lucky kids. Yeah. That's great. Um, and so the, the rest of the story there is so I fell back in love with computer science, yep. took the classes I got, um, but thought I wanted to do research, which is why I ended up landing at Park PARC. Then eventually realized that not being able to ship anything that changed the world yeah. because they didn't have that clear path to market for that class of technology. Then I wanted to go work for a company that did have a clear path to market, and that was Sun, and I went to follow some people that I'd worked with at Xerox before. Yep. But then I still viewed myself as a technologist, as somebody who was writing code, building stuff, you know, and hopefully changing the world in some minor way through the stuff I was writing. Sure. But the project I was working on failed. And it failed because... There were some of the guys on the project who didn't do their stuff on time, didn't get it to integrate properly. It was a huge, colossal mess. We couldn't ship the product, had to cancel the thing and actually do a pretty deep restart. And the uh, then director um, came to me and said, well, do you want to lead this? And I said, are you nuts? Actually, it was a little bit more blunt than that. <laughs> and, um, but then I went and reflected on it for a couple days and thought about it and said, wait a minute, I could spend my whole career working on the corner of some project that fails, right. or I could spend my career working on making projects succeed as close to 100% as possible. And that's not the right choice for everybody. There's got to be senior engineers. Um, everybody can't drain into management. Yep. But for me, that felt like the right choice. I struggled with it for a long time because I kept a title as staff engineer and right, right. still was writing a bunch of code for the, for the project and eventually lost the struggle because I realized every day when I came in to write my code that, oops, there's a problem i got to go yep. unwedge the rest of the team with, and yep. that was the higher leverage thing to do. So that was my trip to, to, um, to management, and I've stuck with that since then. But you asked the question about sort of people starting out. Well, the weird thing about that role was everybody I was managing was substantially senior to me. Mm. And uh, so the problems you asked actually didn't exist for that class of people. It was more how do I make myself um, heard, respected, and so forth by people who have actually got a bunch more experience than I do. Right. Um, but to answer the question from my own experience, well, do you want,
0: that's still another interesting question. Do you want to give? Because that, that's a that's a situation these folks are going to be in at some point soon. You're going to have older bosses or older peers, and you have to. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to go to that one, or do you want? to I talk to uh,
1: well, let me answer the first one first, okay. which is, you know, from my own experience, I would say when I came out of school, I would only worked on one collaborative project, mm. and everything else I'd done was individual. Yep. And so the biggest adjustment that I had to make was how do I work on a team effectively? Totally. Um, and uh, so, you know, if there's one thing you, uh, to, to really focus on, if you can, during school, and if you can't during school, then go find an internship or something where you get, you know, yep. stuffed into that experience and learn how to do that.
0: Yep. Um, but and a, come, and a number of our classes here at UC Santa Barbara in the technology management program force you to work in a group. That's awesome. I hated it as well as a student. I mean, I was like, I don't need a group. I'm I'm great. But that's why I didn't like groups. But then you have to get put <laughs> in a group where everybody's a peer, right? Nobody's a boss, and now you've got to make that thing work or get a bad grade or whatever, have a yeah. bad adverse effect. So it's actually very, very, even though it's somewhat painful, it's a very, very good great. proving ground. That's correct. So get in as many group projects as painful as they are to help you.
1: So to answer the question about how do you lead people senior to yourself or operate effectively as a peer, you know, with people who have have more experience, I'm not sure that's any different than leadership in general. Mm. And uh, the same things that you would do to lead anybody, you just have to do them even better when you're leading people who think they're, you know, they know more. More experienced. They know more. They're superior right. to you. Why the heck are you their boss? Right.
0: But you have to have a certain level of deference, right, that you may not. I mean, it's always good to have a level of deference when you're working with anybody, even if you're senior to them. But I think especially if they're older than you, just a little bit more Absolutely. careful wording. And, Absolutely. And
1: it comes down to, so what are you going to do to lead? And everybody's leadership style is going to be different. There are lots of good, valid leadership styles. But yep. what I'd go back to would be high integrity, because nobody's going to follow somebody for very long that they don't think has high integrity. Curiosity, which means you're always learning new stuff. Humility, which means that as you learn new stuff that invalidates the thing that you're asking your team to do, you stand up with integrity to them and say, hey, you know, I screwed up. I was pushing you guys in the wrong direction. Um, Here's what I think the right direction is. Here's the logic for that. Mm -hmm. Clarity of communication. Um, because nobody's going to follow in a direction that they don't understand. And especially as organizations get larger, the clarity of the communication becomes that much more important.
0: Um, I'm just amazed at how you could run an organization that large. I'm going to ask you a question about that in a minute. Get ready for the next um, student question, just a comment. So on on humility, I I, I think that's hugely important when you're leading, because by admitting when you're wrong, as the leader, it really relieves people to know that, okay, while this person is secure enough to admit that they're wrong, maybe I'm not going to get my head chopped off if I make a mistake. Sure. Yeah. So it's the right culture to, to present.
1: Hi, Taylor. Um, so thank you for coming today. We all really appreciate that you're here and helping us uh, to kind of become uh, successful entrepreneurs, hopefully. Um, my question is, not everyone who seeks to be an entrepreneur or a business person comes from a scientific or IT background. Um, additionally, there's many ways and many philosophies on how to handle becoming successful. Um, As such, what advice can you offer to people who seek to bridge the competitive gap in the IT industry? Um, And, like, what kind of things should people starting to look into technology do now, like coding skills or computing skills or information technology, um, language? Like, what advice could you give us? So, I guess what I would say is that to run a company, it takes all kinds of different skills. Right, so it's not just the technical skill, but it's the people who do HR. It's the people who do sales. It's the people who um, spend most of the time with customers understanding what their customer problem is. Um, so there's such an array of different problems that need to be solved to make a successful business that all kinds of skills and backgrounds are required. And people who can work with people who have all kinds of backgrounds and skills is, are required. So I wouldn't worry about um, that being a fatal impediment in the least because any successful company needs people with different backgrounds. And In fact, different backgrounds drive diversity. The diversity of different backgrounds drives innovation because people coming at problems from different angles and different worldviews and different things they see from customers or the world around them lead to different outcomes, different solutions, stimulate different ideas. So I think that ingredient is actually a really good thing. However, I'll add to that that programming, computer science, is the new lingua franca to so many different kinds of businesses. And having at least some rudimentary background in that would be a great thing to do. So to the degree that you can worm your way into the introductory CS classes at UCSB or at some other institution over the summer, I would strongly encourage that.
0: Yep, and there's so many online resources for for coding. I, I would echo that as well. But keep in mind, so it's sort of like a pendulum, right? The pendulum has swung very, very far over where... You know, you're literate if you don't know how to code, and, and there's some kind of very strong statements, which I don't necessarily agree with, but you want to be – I manage – indirectly, I manage people that wrote a lot of software, and I had to understand at least enough to, to know, you know, were they really giving me the skinny on timing, and does it really take that long to build the feature? I could never build those features. But companies are made up of, you know, lots of different kinds of people – They need people like me that are a little bit better at selling than they are at writing code. So don't be intimidated to join a tech company or to pursue a job in the tech industry just because you don't necessarily have a technical background. Believe me. Most people at those companies don't have a technical background.
1: Absolutely, including my boss, who's a great (laughs) boss. Yeah?
0: Okay. See, there is hope for folks like you and me. Um, So you went, so you did your stint at Sun. You got a little bit of that startup um, excitement under your belt. Then you went to Borland, Um, and then you returned back to Xerox. Now you're much further along in your career. You go in there as a general manager. What what was the impetus for going back as a general manager? Was it to run your own P&L, or was it because you wanted broader management, or was it because Xerox was working on things that blew you away?
1: Actually, that was a little bit later. I actually came back originally to lead a failing software development project. Okay. That where the skills required to do it were somebody who understood the Xerox culture somebody who understood uh, Sun, because that was the ah. client-server backend, and somebody who understood PCs, which I'd gotten from Borland. Okay. So there was probably about one person wow, in the world who like fit that qualification. Stone, you got it all. Exactly. Um, so, so they settled on me, because that was the only choice they had. <laughs> um, and I ended up uh, running engineering for the software division at Xerox. And that was a wonderful time, because... That, uh, where that was headquartered was right down the hill from Xerox Park, from mm-hmm. the research center. Mm-hmm. And there were still a lot of the same friends and colleagues I'd worked with before, yep. frustrated by the same things and not being able to bring their technology to market. Yep. And we actually were able to productize a number of their ideas and, and ship them out through oh. the products that we made. Okay. So that was a neat, you know, a neat return. And that was part of what drove my decision to come back there. And then later on, uh, they decided to spin out three parts of that division kept the largest part, and asked me to be general manager for that part, and that's when that, that happened. And uh, so that was the first time I'd managed a P&L. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Um, it was a load of fun. I really enjoyed sort of being the sort of final decision maker where if something goes wrong with this business, it yep. was my fault.
0: Yeah.
1: And, uh, uh, and I did screw up a lot, and the, the key is, is fast recovery, is learning from the mistakes fast, yep. admitting it, and course-correcting until you get it right.
0: Iterating quickly. So for just to make sure you guys are getting some of the jargon, so P&L is my fault. I use that term first. It's a profit and loss, which just basically means Taylor was responsible for his own business within Xerox. So he had employees, they, they had assigned costs, and they had revenue, and whether he made money or lost money is a, is a Division manager as a general manager was, was obvious to everyone. Sometimes in a big company, you can hide, right? You can find like little places to hide, but you're not going to hide when you take a GM position. So it is a lot like being an entrepreneur of a, of a small business. And then
1: so, so I had, you know, marketing, I had sales, I had engineering, I had HR, I had yeah, finance, like company. all the pieces. And I was for a long period, you know, slightly ignored by headquarters. Um, so it was really running my own thing. It was, it was uh, a lot of fun until it came to. They started doing these uh, quarterly um, broadcast you know, results meeting inside the company, and I happened to be in a group that had three P&L areas, and two of them were $3 billion apiece, and then there was my little microscopic one, and so what I wanted to hide $500 million? No, no, no. I wanted to hide one. <laughs> they put those things up on screen.
0: Wow. Well, I, um, that just raised another question in my mind. So I know you were president at Ariba. You've had super senior positions throughout your career. But that position at Xerox where you're a GM running a business, did you think your next step was a CEO? Because that is, seems like a natural transition.
1: It might have been, but I never run a standalone business. And so I, the, the next logical step for me was to join a startup company. Okay. And uh, so that's when I went to, well, to Calico. I,
0: yeah, I wanted to hear about Calico. So mm-hmm. I know very little about it other than its stock price quadrupled after the IPO. It was, yeah, I figured, it was what, 99, maybe 2000, 98? Joined it in that?
1: 99. Oh, Pre-IPO, okay. took it public, okay. shot through the roof.
0: So you guys have all heard about the dot bubble, right? dot-com bubble, bubble. You guys were uh, four months old at that time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? I'm older than Taylor. So the, uh, Taylor was part of that experience. So he joined a company called Calico. It was a software company. They went public, which means they sold their stock in, the, you know, in public capital markets, which was a very common way to exit at that point, not so common anymore. And then after the IPO, what happened? So then the dot-com
1: bust hit, and about half of our customers were dot-coms. Ah, so guess what? Right. You half your customer base goes away. Your revenue you know, hits half of its projection. Then all the analysts get annoyed with you. Your stock price starts to collapse, and so that's what happened. And then did you get
0: bought out, or did it go to zero? Or? So we
1: sold some of the assets to Digital River, and oh, um, that was the, you know, our e-commerce software went to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and still some of it's running. And then the... Uh, uh, the configurator, so the expert system that did configuration of complex project products, uh, that went to Oracle.
0: Wow, yeah. okay. So you built good products that found homes, you just the market, Yeah. bit of a big victim a, of the market. A, a net asset
1: value at the end of $55 million, down from $2 billion.
0: Oops. $2 billion to $55 million. wow. Glad I didn't, wasn't an investor. <laughs> I'll take the next student question. Okay. Having worked yeah. at
1: multiple levels firms that have taken different approaches to making their corporations more creative and innovative what approach have you found works best and have you seen any success with top-down approaches top-down approaches for innovation yes yeah yes so i innovation is a really key element to intuit and how intuit operates and it's something that the founder scott cook has driven from absolutely from day one mm-hmm. and uh the cornerstone to that is sort of understanding what is the customer problem that you're trying to solve. And not the problem that the customer says they have, but the problem the customer doesn't know how to say that they have, that you discover from observing them to see what it is that, you know, you might be able to do better um, to simplify, you know, what it is they're trying to do. And um, so a big piece of that is customer-driven. It's going and understanding what the customer problems are um, that are beyond what they're, you know, necessarily able to articulate in the yep. moment. Yep. Uh, we believe that innovation is the job of all 8,000 employees. And it doesn't matter what your job or function is. It's, innovation is your job because every single function in the company has room for improvement and, and innovation. And it's something that uh, we afford people time for by giving them up to 10% of their schedule that they can spend on a project their manager doesn't control.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, with the idea that there's a make or break. The, the, the idea has to germinate into something that, that ships or that makes an internal process better, uh, or you, you know, think about it again and try something else with the, with the 10% time. Yep. Uh, about half of people in engineering and uh, the affiliated functions, product management, design, do actually take advantage of that, and we've had some good fruits from that. We also encourage innovation sort of as part of your main job, um, and innovation can be creating a new product, It can be improving a big existing product. It could be improving some technology substrate on which a lot of products run. And uh, uh, not only do we encourage that, but that's something that the founder awards every year several teams Mm. for, you know, particularly impactful, innovative work that they've done.
0: Right. So it's one thing to to talk about innovation, right? I don't think you're going to meet a company where it's, you know, a tech company, a software company that's going to say, Innovation, not important. Um, We don't really care about it. Everybody says they care about it, but um, again, you guys would have to go back and look at the history. Intuit beat Microsoft. One of the only companies that beat Microsoft at one of its core products. Microsoft said, we're going after that market, and Intuit's still here, and actually beat Microsoft pretty soundly. Didn't happen very often in the 90s and and the late 80s. Um, And I think it's because of innovation. There was also, if you would walk down a egghead software, I can't remember the retail stores anymore, you would see Intuit on a shelf with you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of other companies that are gone because they didn't make that transition from box software where you'd walk into a store, pay $99, take it home, load it. They didn't make that transition to the cloud, to services, to all the things that um, Intuit did and, other, and then some of their compatriots and competitors did not do it.
1: Yeah, it's platform innovation, it's market, go-to-market innovation because we started with DOS, went to Windows uh, went from there to online and from there to mobile, which is growing like crazy yep. um, you wouldn 't believe how many people do complicated things like manage businesses or do their full ten forty with schedules or taxes on their on their mobile phone yep. Yep. so that 's the new new platform so of course, you have to sort of reinvent the experience for the product in each of those worlds um, in the mobile case, nobody wants to type in a lot of data on a mobile device, and so getting that data from other sources becomes really, really important. Um, You also mentioned going from box to subscription. That's another journey, right? And how you focus on selling box software is you got to have that splashy thing on the side of the box that says why I should buy the new version. Um, So it's all about features, is adding features to the product. And that's the right thing to do when a product is nascent. But um, when you're in a subscription world, it's all about how do you delight the customer every single month? How do you not tick them off because you've got an issue with your product that would cause them not to continue their subscription? Yep.
0: No, and I... It was before your time, but Intuit actually approached me um, to buy, go to my PC, go to Meeting. That company that we sold to Citrix, they didn't know that Citrix had already started talking to me. And I also thought that was kind of cool because for me, it was they weren't on our list, right? Intuit wasn't on our list of acquirers. Um, and what they wanted to do is use our remote products to allow CFOs and accountants to work with their clients, which I thought was a good idea. I think it was a bigger, we had a bigger opportunity to go to Meeting, but it was still, I, I was impressed. I went up there a few times and had some meetings with those folks and cool. um, definitely some smart people up there. So we, we talked a little bit about your day, 10 hours in meetings. You're doing remote meetings all the time. Um, I, I always found that after a company got to about 200 people, I mean, I was fortunate that had some of these startups that grew, I just started losing track of people. And so I would go to the coffee. Oh gosh, I would yeah. get coffee in the morning, and it would be a new face, and I would be embarrassed. I didn't know their name. I didn't know who they worked for. I didn't know what group they were in. And then after 250, I just gave up. I was just like, hey, hi, new person. Yeah. You know, it's your senior. They know you. And so it's just a lot of awkward moments of hi, John. And hi, stranger. And, exactly. Who you are. It's very how embarrassing. Do, how do you do that with thousands of employees? How do you guys not just you, but the other Scott and the other key executives? I know you don't know everybody's name and that would be ridiculous. But how do you keep sort of a connection with people that aren't just in your direct reports? Yeah, you
1: know, there is that non-reciprocal thing where if you're in a senior position, people know you and you don't necessarily know them yep. past a certain organization size. Yep. And I haven't any counsel about that. It's just plain awkward. Yeah,
0: um, right. The, well, I would always say, so who do, you, who, who do you work for? What team are you on? You know, <laughs> just to try to get context.
1: <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, but I will say that everybody's got a level, and it's usually around 100 people where you cannot keep track of what yeah. everybody is actually up to. Right. Forget names and faces. You, know, you can't keep track of what they're doing. And uh, once you hit that level, then it's about who you choose as managers who are going to drive those people and the operating mechanisms that you set up to track the most important things, trusting your managers will tra- track the, the, the less important things, right. and where you decide not to pay a lot of attention because things are going well, mm-hmm. but trust but verify, um, where you've got a sense for where things are starting to turn yellow and red, and it's time to actually dive in to get a little bit more detail and understand what needs to be done to so fix it. So are you it. doing that
0: through, through KPIs or key performance indicators? Are you doing that through KPI-type um, dashboards, or how, how do you keep Sure, that?
1: and um, meetings with people who are driving various different projects, and you listen carefully for signs that something may be off that doesn't show up in a metric yet on a KPI dashboard. Right. And then when you say once you've crossed that threshold to where you're managing people yourself and you know what they're all doing and you're now managing through managers, it's all the same for, for all the way up. So at that point, it does matter a little bit whether you've got two, three, four, or five layers between you and the people who are doing the, the work, but it's really the same skill repeated all the
0: way up. So do you... I'm going to go to the next student question in a second. Do you do much... Um... And this could be a problem, right? So I'm not suggesting that you do it. But, but it can also be good in the sense you walk around and just kind of drop in on people that might be a couple levels down and just ask them what they're working on or how their day is going. Or is that just you can't do that because that messes people up? Because you have to be careful when you're senior at a company. You can make an offhand remark, and then that person thinks that's their edict, and then they start working on it. So Never mind what their chain of management right, is actually right, telling
1: them right. to do. So, yeah, that can be pretty disastrous. I do think, though, that... Whether it's scheduled or unscheduled, doing reviews with people who are closer to where the work is being done in select areas, because you know as your scope increases, you can't do it across the board, does become an important way of staying in touch.
0: So so it sounds like every time I
1: do it, I remind myself I do need to do it more. Wish you did it more. Yeah. 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 So it
0: sounds like that. The key to doing that is knowing which of those to do and you know when to do them. Yeah. Yeah, because you can't do them all. Okay. We'll take the next student question.
1: Um, based on your management experience at Intuit and other companies, what do you think the most misunderstood aspect of technology management is, and why? Gosh, I guess it would be what it's in service to, and what technology is not there for its own sake. It's there in you know in service to customers, and your customer might be an outside customer to whom you're selling something. It might be internal to the company customer. Um, but really understanding what that customer's needs are, spoken and unspoken, and then going and trying to solve those problems with what it is that you're building. Um, it's the, the, what it is the technology is in service to, which I think is the part that a lot of times technologists don't pay enough attention to.
0: And again, that goes back to needing a well-rounded team. Um, A team of all technologists will never release any code before it's time, right? It's never perfect enough. A team of people like me that are sales-oriented will sell anything to anybody, and (laughs) that's a disaster, right? So I need people like Taylor saying, John, no, you're over prophecy. It's Don't don't do that. It's all about balance, and I think that's a key in any, any relationship, personal relationship, professional relationship, certainly in business. You don't want it going too far in one direction or the other. So... You mentioned, um, or I mentioned, the data previously. Um, data for anybody that isn't following this, um, big data has become a cliche, but 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 a cliche for a reason because there's there is a lot of value there. I know you guys are trying to stitch all your products together with a common data engine. So I'm not looking for any necessarily secrets about into it, but how is that philosophy playing out in your roadmap? And then how do you what what trends do you see in general for big data? outside of Intuit or even inside of Intuit? Because I do think all of these folks that go into tech, there's going to be some aspect of big data that probably influences their jobs.
1: Right. So I think the first and most important thing is to realize that we're just stewards of our customers' data. It's really, it's our job to take a really great care of that data, make sure it doesn't get broken into, make sure it doesn't get misused, get used in a way that's not what the customer would have intended when they gave us access to that data in the first place. So we've established a set of data principles uh, that includes the things like we're never going to use your data in a way that uh, is, is against your own interests. We might use aggregated data that anonymizes you um, in a way that serves the, the customer base at large through big data and data science, right. but we're not going to sell that data to other people um, in a way that wouldn't be, you know, in your direct interest or with your permission. So I think having principles around how you deal with data in a big data world are um, are really important. The, the other thing I guess I would say is that when you get large piles of data and look at it in aggregate, the things you can do with it are just amazing. Yeah. Right? In terms of um, understanding customers' behavior at scale, because you can't go visit too many customers in one year and watch what they're doing, yep. but you can watch what they're doing through their behaviors with your product and see what parts of your product are working for them and which ones they're stumbling on. Um, you can also look at it to simplify their experience so if they're using our personal finance products it ought to be the case that you know now we may have access to their 1099s their w-2s and we should be able to pull that into tax and enable them to get their taxes done with a quick review and and send it off Mm -hmm. Um, and also uh, if you if you can use that data to really understand where there may be errors in what your customers are doing because if you have a customer who's behaviors don't lie within any micro-cohort that you can see in tens of millions of yep. pieces of data for other other people like them, then you can recommend to them, hey, you may want to look at this part because you may have missed a deduction that you should have taken mm-hmm. or something like that. And then it can also be used to help detect fraud. Um, so we're putting a lot of investment into... Uh, detecting, you know, fraud and, and, uh, uh, against our own products and then helping, you know, state governments and so forth. So is that a
0: partnership with, with the federal state governments?
1: Uh, part of that is things we're doing in our own products, and part of that is in right. partnership with some of the states.
0: Right, okay, interesting. So just to be clear, um, Intuit is working with, a- after medical, after home, uh, or excuse me, personal um, health information. It's probably the most sensitive information people have. It's their financials, it's their business financials, it's their social security number, it's, right, it's, it's, it's big stuff. So keeping that data secure Safe. and seg- segmented, and, yeah, it's uh, key. And I remember when we first started talking to companies about cloud computing, long before it was called cloud computing, that was their huge concern, like, I want my customer's data, like, I don't want to have that stuff. And we were working in the world of little data, right, it's all big data today. We didn't have these tools that could aggregate data. But we could look at our users and we could see the things you're talking about. Hey, how come everybody drops off or, you know, 33% of people drop off into this fourth step in our funnel. Why don't we change something? So it's very basic things that young entrepreneurs, not that young, but that entrepreneurs would, would embrace. Whereas more established companies saw the negative, the downside, the risk of that, and we saw the upside and the advantages of it. Now, obviously, it's been adopted um, wholesale since then. But I remember sitting in, and a, it wasn't into it, I, I remember sitting in a, a large software company's offices and, The guy, like, pounded his fist and he said, our customers will never, ever have our software that's not behind their firewall. Okay. They're now one of the largest uh, cloud computing companies in the world. Uh I won't won't (laughs) say the name, but it's not into it. So you mentioned um, that you allow your engineers to spend 10% of their time working on projects. That's something I would advise you guys when you're out there interviewing. Ask, you know, maybe don't use the 10% number, but just ask, hey, do you have programs where employees can spend part of their time working on non-structured or non-managerially driven initiatives. Because that's usually a good sign. Right. It's a sign that the company values innovation, and it's a sign that you can work on some side projects that may end up being um, uh, financially or psychologically satisfying for you. So you mentioned 10%. Um, I, one one pr- product that came out of it, which I thought was brilliant, was, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but in layman's terms, the ability to take a picture of your um, one of the more simple um, EZ forms or something and file it. So yeah. you're able to take a picture with your phone, and then, boom, you guys file it for, that, for the, for the consumer. Yeah, that
1: was SnapTax. SnapTax.
0: Okay, uh, cool. it,
1: it, uh, yeah, you take a picture of your W-2, you answer about six questions, you hit send, you filed your tax return.
0: So pretty easy. Uh, did that person get a big bonus?
1: Oh, yeah, they were celebrated. Um, so how does
0: that work? I, uh, joking <laughs> aside, like, so I'm, I come up with Snap SnapTax, and it becomes a, a hit within the, the company. How does that work? Do I get a bonus, or do I just get the adulation of coming up with that, or do I get both? Or it varies. But the most impactful
1: innovations, we pick those out every year and in front of the whole company award those teams, and they they get you know some monetary benefit. But the biggest thing they get is a quarter off to go work on their next innovation. Oh, sweet. And then you find out that a lot of those people use that quarter off to go win another innovation award the next year.
0: Nice. Yeah. That's fantastic. And as we know, because we've been doing this, you guys may not know um, yet, and that's money is only a, such, so much of a motivator. So just giving somebody a big bonus, for it ain't going to do it, right? But getting them in front of their peers, showing the, the whole company what these, these folks built and how impactful it was, that's really what people value, and then having time to pursue um, uh, their own... Um, agendas. They then come back and help the company. It's wonderful. I'm going to go to the next question in a minute. Um, one more second here before we go to the student question. Just to follow-up. So, are there other things that, that you're comfortable talking about uh, that have come out of that program that have either been commercialized or that will be commercialized? I'm just also curious how the process works. Like, How do you pick those? I would imagine there's a lot of good ideas. Well, there's also a lot of bad ideas. Yeah. So maybe we're taking a minute you're to like talk about You're like a venture capitalist. <laughs> you have to sit there and say, no, no,
1: no. So, You know, not every innovative idea is going to work. And if it did, it would mean you're not being very innovative because you're not being very edgy. Right. Um, And so what you want to do is, with those kinds of programs, is fail fast, is recognize that it's not working, Mm. um, make sure that people establish what their metrics were for success. And if they don't meet those metrics by a country mile, then, you know, pivot, pivot, drop the whole thing, move on, put the resources on something else. Now, for the ones that do succeed, and we have typically about 100, 150 every year that do. Um, so there's a fair number. There, there are some pretty notable successes in there. So, mm-hmm. for example, the entire new Harmony user experience for the QuickBooks ecosystem that unified uh, payments, payroll, and QuickBooks into a single more modern uh, user experience, that originally came out of unstructured time. Wow. Right? Um, all of the... Uh, are, we serve accountants with um, tax software and, and uh, other software, accounting software, and um, all the accountant management software, moving that to mobile, that was done in unstructured time.
0: Ah, okay.
1: And then, of course, those that things become huge. structured projects after that. But, yeah.
0: That seems like that would have been a huge project. Wow. We'll take the next student start question. Start small. Yeah, start small. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> uh, you mentioned earlier that you had to transition from working individually to collaborations. So now that you've worked in a various amount of business environments, uh, what social skills... Have proven to be your greatest assets in developing your success as a business leader?
1: I, I'm an introvert engineer. I have no social skills. <laughs> um, operating outside my comfort zone. Um, no, it, it, in all seriousness, uh, I think that it is uh, working in teams in a meaningful, collaborative way where you're trying to understand what is the mission the team should be trying to solve. What is it that the interests of all the people within the team are uh, have, and how do you actually find the intersection between all of those things? And so, um, uh, you know, it's really about understanding and problem-solving, but in a people space rather than a technology space, my initial quick notwithstanding.
0: Oh, thank you. So... HP, again, this might just be folklore, but my understanding is Hewlett and Packer would walk around. They were both engineers, and they'd kind of walk around and say, hey, what are you working on? What are you doing? And then when an idea, and they allowed some time for innovation, when an idea would come up that just didn't fit within the HP framework, um, a lot of times they said, sorry, we can't help you, but a few times they said, hey, I like that idea a lot, and I want to fund your business, but it's not going to be an HP business. Mm-hmm. Have you guys ever done that? Or have you ever have you
1: ever been tempted to do that? Not to my knowledge. Okay. Uh, what we tend to do there is to say, "Hey, if it's not really working in you know the company's construct or is not successful, if it doesn't add to our existing business, then let's take those resources um, and reapply them to another problem that may actually serve those uses."
0: So, if you had folks that get that answer and then go off and do their own thing, uh, usually people are pretty good about saying,
1: "Okay, let's move on to the next project." I mean, that's Life in an innovative world because, again, not every innovative idea succeeds. Um, so, you know, and occasionally you get some people who really want to go pursue their passion elsewhere. Right. And, and, but and, we're not going to fund them to do that. Right. Okay.
0: So, you, one of the terms you guys use is innovation catalyst for people that are they're doing these things. Is there a certain profile that you're finding? Is it skewing younger or is it people that have been there longer to understand the company better? What, or is it across the board? Is there no.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. It's really across the board um if you think about innovation diversity drives innovation mm-hmm. and so the more diverse the innovation catalyst group is the better and so we actually train people from all walks of the company who have an interest in it to be innovation catalysts on a structured process to help drive innovation with a larger team mm-hmm. and they come from every single background that you can imagine within the company every age group and
0: um, so is that a program or I just raise my hand and say, I want to be part of it, or do I have to be picked, or is there a vetting You process? raise
1: your hand, there is a vetting process, there's a training process, and then you get anointed as an innovation catalyst, and then when somebody wants to run an innovation project that requires that kind of work, they can say, hey, I want some number of innovation catalysts to show up and help me through the initial process of these, and they'll come and do that.
0: So it is that... Usually
1: in a, as an adjunct to their day job.
0: Yeah, that was good. that's my... So I'm, I don't know this world, right? I'm a small company guy, so... How, how would that work if somebody taps me to be an innovation catalyst? Is that essentially over and above everything else I'm doing?
1: Sometimes it's a full-time job, but sometimes, um, most often, it's actually an adjunct.
0: And it doesn't, it's not my 10%? But no. It's just, just more of the same, right? I mean, yeah. it, it's not more of the same. It's, it's more, it's incremental. Yeah. And, and people, um, because of the environment you guys have created, the culture you've created, I assume they're, they're um, honored to be asked. Oh, absolutely. And most people step accolades up and for that. want to be part of that. Yeah. That's interesting. I like that. I like that a lot.
1: You learn a lot by doing it. Sure. So it helps grow your career. Well,
0: it's it's. I would say, again, people aren't motivated by money, and they're motivated by things like that. Hey, did you know I was asked five times this year, how many times were you asked to be an innovation catalog? <laughs> um, so you you guys do something else that I found interesting. So brainstorming, I think we all understand what brainstorming is. Um, there's things called quarterly Sorry. business reviews or QBRs where you sit down with a big customer, and you just listen to their problems and work together. But you guys do painstorming. Um, I just... Love to hear how that might differ from a QBR and just any, if you guys can, if you can give me any um, color on what that, how that really works. It sounds cool, but how does it really work in practice?
1: So, if you think that customer driven innovation comes largely from solving a pain point that a customer has, mm-hmm. then having mechanisms to really understand customer pain, articulate or inarticulate, is really important. So, sitting down with customers multiple times through the year to watch what they're doing, ask some questions, watch their processes, and try to figure out what pain they have, um, that, that can actually be a, a, a catalyst to innovative ideas.
0: So it's the issue, um, and this is probably apocryphal, but the, but the infamous Henry Ford quote, right? If I would asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. So you have to be careful the way you ask the question. You have to ask that question in a way that you're sort of leading the witness a little bit without leading them too far, you know, because if you just get the answer that you led them to, then that doesn't work. But if you just simply say, oh, you know, what do you want, then they're going to probably give you an incremental extension of whatever you've already given them. Right. So it's not easy. So that's that's
1: about falling in love with the customer's problem, not what the customer says Mm -hmm. they want as a solution. Right. Because the solution they'll ask for is that bigger horse and not the tractor.
0: Right, right. Well, what I think is fascinating with big data is, just like when people are surveyed, often what they say isn't what they do, either because they don't Absolutely want to tell not. you or they just... It's That's just, where data comes in. Yeah. So it's neat to hear what people say, and then it's neat to look at the data and see where they correlate or don't yeah. correlate and then feed that into this, this concept of, um, of, the, of the pain. So I want to ask you about something from a few years ago. So you were into, And this happens when you're a senior executive, right? Sometimes you have to be a firefighter, jump in and, and fix problems. And you were asked to go down to San Diego and work with the TurboTax team um, what, just give me a little color on um, what you had to do to re re-motivate them or just kind of restructure that team. It sounds like it was a chance for you to get hands-on on a little bit smaller scale on a very important product.
1: Yeah, I, we'd gone through a few years where the product had gotten better, but the uh, competitors had gotten better faster. Sure. And um, so it was time to do a hard reset and think about how we were doing innovation with, with TurboTax because uh, it was still sort of harvesting benefits from a deep innovation that had happened many years before around uh, moving to an interview process and making the interview as simple as it possibly could be. And so the first thing is, is vision and operating mechanisms. The first thing was, what is the vision? How do we set a vision for this team that they can all get their heads wrapped around, that does change the world for the better? Um, and and uh, the vision was the idea of taxes are done. You show up. You review some stuff, they're done. You don't have to do any work. No worries. Mm-hmm. No work. And so that's a vision that everybody, because taxes are such a pain, you yeah. know, that, that everybody can get around. That's really solving a customer pain point. So vision. Then you have to break it down to, well, how are you going to accomplish that? What are the engines you have to build? What are the data har- harvesting things you have to build? Um, uh, what kind of inference engines? What kind of machine learning systems do you have to build to serve that goal? Right. And... Um, Well, then it comes down to, well, how do you motivate each of those teams? How do you get them moving when you're not even quite sure what direction they should be moving in, and they're not sure either. And so what we did is we broke the product down into, I want to say, 15 or 20 different areas. And we um, uh, sat down with usually on the order of 8 or 10 people in the room at a time every single week, week in with that week out on that part of the Mm. product and said, okay, show us what you're doing to make it better. And at first what we got was the designers would show these wild designs that look better and better, and you go, well, that's really good, except you get lulled into the sense of we're actually going to ship that Mm. when no software has been written that actually reifies that design. And so then we quickly shifted to, hey, we got to be reviewing what it is that the engineers have actually built um, based on where the designers are, you know, one step ahead, not 100 steps ahead. And... Um, and then you know what are the problems they're running into. What roadblocks can we break for them? What uh, direction can we do to, uh, give them to help temper it? And the biggest thing that happens with that is not so much the advice you give, but the fact that they know they got to show up next week with something new. Um, and that just drives the speed mm-hmm. of innovation right. and attention to detail right? that otherwise wouldn't So it's bear. sort of like
0: the scrum mentality of, hey, I'm going to see you in two weeks, and we're going to do a stand-up, yeah. and you've got to produce something. And
1: you're going to be talking to a senior executive every single week, right. um, and you've got to show up with something that is the best you can do every single week. So that just drives a level of yep. speed and execution. And, again, you want to make sure that's tied back to the vision. What is the vision? Are we doing the things that are in line with that vision?
0: Right. But that's a great call to action. I mean, one of the things I always enjoyed in business was – like labeling somebody as, you know, I know you can do this. I know, you know, you, you got we're a great team, blah, blah, blah. And then watching them rise to that occasion Absolutely. and actually deliver on that. Because they always do. And go, God, I didn't really even believe any of that when I said it. But no, no just kidding. Um, so I, I have one last question for you. But before I get to that, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I'm hoping that at least one student in this room and maybe a dozen people watching, um, will sell a company, one of their companies, to a large software company or a large tech company, maybe to Intuit. You've been involved, although not directly, you've been pretty involved in some acquisitions. What, what are there things in general that a young student that hasn't been on the big company side of the fence should know about? What a guy like you looks for in a in a startup. It's not a startup anymore, but a smaller company that might be an acquisition. Obviously, the product's got to be great, and it's got to have a great value profit. Those things aside, what else do you look for that are either knowing and how I'd have ever touched that company or, wow, they really did something right here? I, I think maybe the most important thing is cultural fit. So
1: if you can build a small company that has a really elegant culture, principles-driven culture, yep. uh, then the likelihood that you're going to fit into a company um, that has that kind of culture is, is much greater. And you should seek to sell to a company that has that Absolutely. kind of culture. Yes.
0: Right?
1: Um, because otherwise life will be miserable until you vest out.
0: Yep.
1: And um, the, the other thing would be, does it solve a problem that we actually have? And uh, – or, or is it something that's completely unrelated? Mm-hmm. And that's something that's hard to know. And sometimes you can plan – Uh, to build something that you know solves a hole that a large company has that they're not likely to be able to get to as quickly as you can. But sometimes it's more serendipitous than that. I would say more often the latter.
0: I think so. And I think the better acquisitions are are not planned out. or It's not a master plan. Um, And So don't, in other words, don't try to build a company to solve into its problem. Build a great company that solves customers' problems. And if it also happens to be of interest into its customers, then then maybe they'll be your acquirer. I think that's the right message as opposed to try to... Because I remember we always had lists of people that would buy us. I don't think we ever got it right. Like, Citrus wasn't on our list. It should have been. But they were a whole different type of company. They did remote stuff, but they did sort of the older school. You know, They did it in a different way. Yeah. We, we didn't see them as an acquirer. And then they, they were on our list. But they weren't in, on the top of our list. Sure. Um, I think you just build great companies and good things happen. So I just want to end, end with one question. Um, I think, again, it's sort of interest to everyone in the room and, and much, many of the people watching. So a lot of the folks in here will be graduating in, in 10, 11 weeks. Uh, they'll be going into that wonderful real world. What what advice do you have for them on that first job, or is there anything between now and then, or even some of the juniors that are in here, things they can do between now and when they walk out the door that's going to give them a higher probability of, of success?
1: I'd say first pick something you love. Because if your heart's in it, your ass will work itself out. Yep. Um, and I would say then put all of your heart into it because even if you discover a couple years down the road that that's not what you want to do for the rest of your career and yep. you want to pivot and do something else the distance you covered the things you learned the practices you learned the skills you learned while you were doing that thing with all your heart somehow will apply to a large degree to the next thing that you pivot to yep and that's just so
0: much better than not committing Taylor, I really appreciate you being here thank you Likewise. so much thank you